listening to the Living Room North Living Room North Living Room North podcast. My name is Justin Michael Warner. I'm from Belleville, Ohio, which is at the other end of our country. And uh, the reason that I don't, I, I know there's a lot of reasons why people come to these things. Maybe somebody invited you, or you've been coming a long time, you're looking forward to it, or you're dreading it, whatever the case may be. Um, but I always like to tell people the reason that I am here and the reason that I do what I do right off the bat. At 17 years old, I grew up in a, past, in a pastor's house, a uh, pastor's kid my whole life. At 17 years old, I was at a conference uh, where the speaker was up talking about people being called into full-time ministry, which basically meant they were going to spend their life um, studying the Bible and speaking in churches and teaching and things like that. And so at the end of this conference, he's saying, if anybody in this room feels like uh, they would like to commit their life to that, I'm just going to ask you to come down here and we want to pray over you and kind of mark this moment. And I remember sitting in my chair thinking, my dad's a pastor. I see all of the difficult conversations he has to have. I see like how we have five kids in our family and we kind of struggle to, to get by financially and things like that. I had no interest in doing this for a living. But I remember sitting there, and as he said that um, to the, the crowd of people, I had this sickness in my stomach, like I was in knots. And I thought, okay, God, I think I, I think I understand what you're trying to do here, and I'm not into that. I'm not okay with that. That is not the, the path that I want to pursue, but it just got worse and worse until I got to the point where I said, God, I'm going to stand up, and if I still feel this pit in my stomach, I'm going to walk to the bathroom. But if it goes away, I'm going to know that this is what you want me to do with my life. And I stood up, and it completely left me, and I felt this peace kind of come over me, and I thought, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do at 17, I'm going to put the stake in the ground, and I'm going to pursue this with my life. And so ever since, I've just been chasing that direction um, um, towards God and what he's wanted me to do. And it's led me here with you, which is amazing, because I've come a long way to get here, like literally a long way. I grew up in Ohio, which is not close, and uh, I grew up, I was homeschooled. Anybody homeschooled? All of you that raised your hand, just you broke the homeschool rule. Draw no attention to yourself at all costs. That's the rule. You just broke it. I broke it too. I'm sorry. I'm with you. But I was homeschooled. And, you know, the homeschool thing, people are always like, what's it like to be homeschooled? And I like to tell them, if you want to know what it's like to be homeschooled, imagine you're drowning and your mom hands you a textbook. That's what it's like to be homeschooled. There you go. They're like, okay, got it. Cool. I'm going to stay with public school. I'm like, you should because I'm a little weird. You're not weird. You're not weird. I'm weird. And so... Homeschool, you know, it had its pros and cons all along the way. Pro, I was captain of the football team. I'm not a huge guy, but I was captain of the football team. Con, somehow mowing the lawn always worked its way into practice. Uh, pro, I was homecoming king. Con, dates. Difficult to find one. Some of you were like, why? I'm like, you'll figure it out on your way home. Uh, pro, the lunch menu was always better. A con was I just watched the lunch lady change my little brother's diaper, and so I'm like, you can keep your egg salad, lunch lady. I'll eat later. Um, but the, the, maybe the hardest part of being homeschooled was like navigating family dynamics during class because, you know, you go to school and you're sitting among strangers and things like that, people who don't know a lot about you, so it's easy like to stick to the work and stuff like that. Try going to school with people who know everything about you. I have a younger sister. I'm one of five, as I said. I have a younger sister who is really, really, really mean. She's the type of person that will give you a million-dollar response for a 50-cent comment. And so she would, like, walk down the stairs in the morning, and I'd be sitting there eating my cereal and be like, hey, somebody's having a bad hair day. And she'd look at me and be like, you should have never been born. <laughs> I'm like, what? And she's like, yeah, you should never be here. This should have never happened. Eat your cereal. And I'm like, all right. 
I'm going to enjoy it a little less. And so you think math is hard, try doing math while you're questioning your existence. And just, oh, what's happening? But, you know, at the end of homeschool, uh, my parents let me go to high school. They thought it'd be a good idea to just to kick me into the public school system around high school. That was tragic for me. God made me small and with a big mouth, but really fast. So I survived it. You know, I could just run away from all of my scary problems. But anyway, after that, I I thought, you know what? I'm in Ohio. I'm done with the cold. I'm done with the corn. Forget it. I'm going to go to college someplace tropic, someplace by the ocean. So I packed up my stuff and I went to college in Indiana. (laughs) Mom didn't teach us geometry. So there it is. That's just, I'll just give you a second and let that sink in. You're with me now. Uh, so six years of college later, I brought my bachelor's degree down to Atlanta. Some of you do it in four. I chose to take my time and money elsewhere. But anyway, got to Atlanta, started working at church. And then one day, this girl walks into this church, and she's looking for a job. And I'm like, that's the girl I'm going to marry. She was beautiful. And so I decided to tell her on her first day, a bunch of us are going to lunch. We would love for you to come, get to know the staff. Nobody was going to lunch. I fabricated the whole thing. So there we are sitting at Panera. I fake a phone call. I'm like, oh, really? Car trouble. Sorry, too bad. It's just us. <laughs> and then I just laid it all out there. I'm like, hey, I think you're, you're amazing. I would like to date you. And she's like, okay, I don't want you to kill me, so I'm going to say yes. Let's date. <laughs> And so we had kind of a Facebook relationship for a little while because I was scared to talk to her. Homeschooled, you get it. Anyway, I kind of realized this phenomenon in some of my friendships and dating in the past, but when I start dating my wife because I'm like amazed by this woman, this thing that I struggled with, and it was this idea that love communicated but not demonstrated is complicated. I remember those days in our relationship when we were kind of getting to the I love you moment of our relationship that it was difficult for me in public to show affection because something inside of me was holding me back. Maybe it was the way I was parented. I don't know. We haven't got there in counseling yet. But I realized this phenomenon that love communicated to somebody but not demonstrated to that person is complicated. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've experienced somebody. Maybe somebody you're dating. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's somebody else that when they say I love you to you, enough times without doing anything to show you that they love you, that love is complicated. You start to question it. You start to think, do you though? Like, do you really love me? As a pastor, I get the opportunity to sit with a lot of married couples and kind of help them navigate any of the complexities that come about in their marriage. This is something that comes up all the time. I just don't feel like he loves me anymore. And then the husband will look at the wife and say, uh, sincerely, oh, how I love you. I do love you. I love you. But she doesn't believe it, and it's complicated because there's no demonstration of that love. And I think something in our culture has happened around those three words, I love you. There's been a fundamental shift in the words, I love you. And we all leverage them in different ways. We leverage love in a lot of ways, maybe to get what we want or maybe to fulfill something that we need. But without demonstration, I love you slowly shifts from affection to obligation, Maybe you've seen this in a dating relationship, maybe not yours, but somebody else's. You get into a relationship and you say, I love you, I love you too, and you genuinely do, and everything is great, but maybe now you're not feeling the relationship, and she says, I love you, and out of obligation, you say, I love you too, because if you don't say it, if you, if you leave the obligation and don't say it, it's going to spin you in a DTR, destroy the relationship, and you're going to have to talk about why the person didn't respond. You think about your parents when you get off the phone. That's like the signature way to get off the phone. It's this, I love you, I love you too. And sure, we mean it, but we say it more out of obligation than out of affection. When's the last time, whether it's a friend or or a significant other or a relative, whoever it is, when's the last time you took a pause, you thought about it, 
and you genuinely communicated to them, I love you. It becomes obligation over time. And so we're going to talk about love tonight because I think that one of the biggest ways and one of the biggest relationships uh, where love turns from affection to obligation is our relationship with God or our lack of our relationship with God. One of the biggest places where love communicated but not demonstrated gets complicated is this nebulous God up in the sky who we've heard all our life if you've been going to church or even if you haven't gone to church, you hear people talk about it. We've even said it tonight in the songs we sing that there is this reckless, overwhelming, never-ending love of God for us. And that can get really complicated because it's like, hey, love communicated but not demonstrated is complicated. And if I'm honest, I really haven't seen God demonstrate love to me. I've heard about it. I see my friends and their relationship with God saying, oh, no, I love God. But when we peel back the layers and maybe when we get honest with ourselves, maybe when we say, I love God, it's more out of obligation than affection. Maybe somewhere along the lines, we've forgotten what demonstration, uh, the demonstration of love of Jesus actually is and actually looks like. And so I briefly want to explain that to you tonight because I do believe, and it's why it fuels everything that I do, my parenting, my marriage, my job, my friendships, is the love of Jesus and helping people understand and kind of uh, un-understand some of the things that they've learned through culture, media, and even church in general. But to understand the love of God, we have to back up a lot, you know? We have to actually know our own story. And now, while I don't know all of you, or many of you, I know that we all have our unique individual stories, and they're all very different. My story is different than your story. That's one of the beautiful things about community and the living room in general, is that all of these stories can come together, and we can all get along and learn from each other. But there is an underlying story that is common to all of us. And to understand that story, I'm going I'm to explain it a way that my pastor Andy explained it once, and it was so clear to me. In the 1860s, there was a guy by the name of Louis Pasteur, and it's French, so I'm not going to try to say it Frenchly, um, but that's his name. So he was like this medical scientist type of guy, and, and so what he noticed when he was looking around is people were getting sick. People were getting sick, and they were dying, and this was a predictable pattern for him. He could look around and say, okay, this person just got sick. Now I'm going to watch them as they progress and they get worse and worse and worse and worse and they get fevers and they start to sweat and they go pale and then they die. And then he watched as uh, uh, some doctors would try to fix some of the sickness. Oh, well, we know that there's infection of the leg, so we're going to go in and surgically remove parts or do things like that and it would be successful for a while. And then the person would take a turn for the worse and eventually they would die. And so he began to look into it. So he gets out his microscope. And he starts to look at some of the stuff, uh, some of the tools that they were using, some of the flesh that that they had had taken out that was infected and things like that. And he begins to notice something. He begins to notice these things called germs. And when he discovers germs, he realizes that there's an invisible world that they couldn't see that was impacting the the visible world that they could see. And so when he realized this, he thought, well, we need to deal with this invisible world in order for our visible world to work correctly. So they began using certain acids on their surgical tools to sterilize them. And they would do surgeries and people would recover and things were great. But when I think about that, I think about it this way. He needed a microscope to see that there was an invisible world impacting the visible world. We don't. We just need a rear view mirror. Because if a lot of us will look back in our life over the decisions that we've made, the piles of regrets we may have, the mistakes we've made, and we say, you know what? I didn't want to end up in this place. I didn't want to make those decisions. I didn't want to have to be standing in consequence now. 
But when we look back, we don't really understand or comprehend the things that went wrong or the wrong turns or why we did what we did. We have to understand that there is an invisible world that impacts our visible world, one that we don't talk about a lot because sometimes it can seem overly mystical or overly like Lord of the Rings-ish or Harry Potter-ish when you get into it and you can say, you know what, I'm a little too educated to believe in that invisible world that you're talking about, but the reality is it exists and it's the thing that's attacking all of us. And here's where it came from. In the very beginning, God created the earth. He created this perfect globe that he designed for everything to work in perfection. And in it, he put a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. You've probably heard of them. And Adam and Eve were free to roam around the garden and have free reign of everything that they wanted. But God said, hey, there's one tree right here. I'm just going to ask you not to eat the fruit from that tree. And they're like, good deal. You know, we, our diet happens to be fruitless. So whatever, we'll eat everything else. And then this serpent, the enemy, Satan, comes into the picture and he starts to talk to Eve. And what he does is he deceives Eve. He plays on her pride. He says, hey, God just doesn't want you to be as good as him. If you eat that, you're, you're going to be on the same level as God. Your eyes are going to be open, and you're going to see that things are much better. So she falls into temptation, and then Adam falls into temptation. And in a moment, sin enters into this perfect globe, this perfect world that God created, and shatters it. And then sin wreaks havoc for generations. Kingdoms fall. People begin to get very selfish. There's lust and lies and greed and anger and envy and pride as a result of the sin that wreaks havoc on our visible world. And we get to this place thousands of years later and we look around and we turn on the news and we go, what is happening? Where does this evil come from? Or we look at it in ourselves in the mirror and we go, why do I keep falling into this temptation? Why do I keep making bad decisions? Why do I feel so lonely? Why do I always feel so much regret? Why do I feel like I can't get it right? Why do I feel like love is so far away from me? Why is this God thing not interesting to me at all? I can't get on board or believe in it because I see all this other stuff. And we attribute all of that to the one who didn't design it. There's an invisible world that impacts your visible world. And the enemy has one job and one mission in your life. That is to seek you out, to steal from you, and destroy you. And the masterful thing about it is he doesn't do it with like big obvious lies. He takes the good truth that God gives and he perverts it just enough that it looks like a huge promise that will be so fulfilling. And on the other side of it, we're left feeling so empty and so worthless. There's this guy, Paul, who came after Jesus, and he began to write letters to churches because he knew there was an invisible world that impacted the visible world. And he knew that we couldn't just stand by and try our best to get past it or get through it or try our best to understand God's love and achieve it and things like that. And so he began to write these letters to help people understand, letters that we can still use today, that are still true today. And one of the letters he writes this thing that uh, when I was younger haunted me. Because he says this in Romans 3.23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I remember the first time I read that and I was younger, and I thought, wait a minute. Now, I get that there are people in the world who have sinned. Sinned is one of those words we don't use a lot. Like, that's a really negative, judgmental word. But what he's saying is, hey, when Adam and Eve let sin enter into the world and God's ideal shattered, every person born after that had this thing called a sin nature to where they're born, they're prone to wander. They're prone to sin, to separate themselves from God. They're lost. And Paul is saying all of us, because of that moment, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not above this. 
Ryan's not above this. You're not above this. No person who's ever done any amount of good is above this. We are all in the same place in that. So when I say we all have a story and we all have something in common, it's this, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This invisible enemy, invisible world, this thing called sin has been eating away at us from the day we were born, has been trying to get us off course from the plan that God has for our life. And when we come to realize it and go, wait a minute, you're telling me that all of us have sinned and been separated from the love of God. Uh, what does that mean for me? What it means for you is this. In Romans 6, 23, Paul goes on to say that the wages of that sin, that thing in our life, is death. And simply what he's saying is there's nothing you can do to bridge the gap. There's nothing that you can do to make up for that sin. There's nothing you can do to eradicate that sin from your life, from your heart. There's nothing you can do to keep that sin away from you and, and try your hardest and get rid of it and, and, and come to church more often and read your Bible more and do all the right things. But then there's this verse, and I'm just going to be honest with you for a second. I prepare for talks a lot, but about two years ago, I came across this verse again as I was preparing for a talk like this one, and something about it struck me in a different way. I sat at my kitchen table at 6 a.m., and I was just weeping. Because for the first time, and, and however many times I've read it, God wrecked me with some truth in this verse. That I have complicated my love with him unnecessarily. Because Paul says it very clear in this verse. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the reason that that wrecked me is because I, I was challenged to think of one other relationship in my life where someone was consistently and beyond a shadow of a doubt demonstrating love for me. Where I could say this person or that thing consistently never fails, demonstrates their love for me. I had lots of people who communicated their love to me, but sitting at my kitchen table that day, I just thought, God demonstrated his love for me in this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died. When there was nothing I could do, when there was no amount of good I could do, God said, hey, you know what? This ideal that I created was shattered, but I'm not okay not having a relationship with you. And right now it's impossible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son Jesus to earth to live a perfect life that we are incapable of living and then die the death that we should have died to pay for that sin so that God could have a relationship with us. Now I'm going to take a second and explain this verse a couple different ways because the implications are everything for our life. I mean, the implications of this verse are why I do what I do. They're the reason that I get up every morning and I want to spend time with God is because of what he did for me. This verse is like when you're a kid and you're outside and you're playing in the mud and you get all muddy and you're disgusting and dirty and you come up to the front door and your mom has just cleaned the house or your stepmom's cleaned the house or whoever and it's spotless and it's clean and when you get to the door they say, wait, 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 don't come in here. Not till you clean yourself up. And isn't that the way that we kind of treat people who want to come to God? You can't be a part of this till you clean up your life. And God is saying, that is so far from the truth. And God's economy and what this verse is saying is when you're messed up and you're dirty and you're muddy and you come to the front door, Jesus swings the door open and he grabs you in the middle of all of your mess and he swings you around the living room and the mud is all over him. He takes it all upon himself and now you are perfectly clean and all of that sin and all of that shame is upon him and he took it to the cross where they killed him 
And then three days later, he came back to life so that through Jesus, we could have a relationship with God the Father. God demonstrated his love for us in the most powerful of ways. And until we understand who God is and what he's done, it is nearly impossible to understand and embrace the fact that he demonstrated love for you. It's easy to think he did it for somebody else. But sometimes I think that we watch a lot of of news and media and we hear things in the hallways or around campus that make us think this God is this this hater, you know? He hates people and he hates certain things and you've got to get a certain checklist right so that God will love you. But the truth I want you to understand tonight is Jesus didn't come to defeat you. He came to defeat what is defeating you. Jesus didn't come to take you out, to say you're a sinner, you're bad, you're evil, you're awful. Jesus came to defeat the thing that's defeating you, the invisible world that's impacting your visible world. Jesus is saying, you know what? There's nothing you can do about that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to come and I'm going to take it upon me and I'm going to take it to the cross to spare your life. So oftentimes we think that God is out to get us and God was just out (laughs) to get us and bring us home and have us back in relationship with him. And I think about that. I think about, man, so oftentimes it's hard for us to actually embrace that because it's too easy. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, this idea of grace that we can, through Jesus, have forgiveness for all of the things that we've done, all of the things that separate us from God, that we can uh, claim victory over this invisible world. And you know, if you truly understood grace, I'll put it up here, if you understood grace, you would be tempted to abuse it, not abandon it. And that was something in that kitchen table moment that I had to realize Because I was still living my life the way I grew up in church, with a lot of rules and regulations. I would say, hey, no, it's about a relationship with Jesus. But really, I would feel so much guilt and so much shame from certain things that if I'd fall into temptation or struggles or things like that, or God, I'd just feel distant from you. And and I came to the realization, if we truly understood how much grace Jesus gives us, how free the grace is, and how easily we can receive it, we would be tempted to abuse it, not abandon it. But because we don't view God as a loving, heavenly Father, it's hard to imagine that he would so freely give us his grace. But when Jesus came, and when Jesus died on the cross and came back to life, there was a new phrase that I start to see threaded through Scripture. It's this, love demonstrated can be reciprocated. And that word reciprocated basically means responded to. And what I mean by that is love that's demonstrated to you, love that's made evident to you, someone who demonstrates their love for you, allows you to respond to that love with love. When you are able to see it and understand it and take hold of it, you're able to respond to it. But how do you respond to the love demonstrated from God through Jesus? Well, Paul in Romans chapter 10 says you respond this way. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now the band is going to come out right now and we're going to sing a song and here's what I want to do. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want us to think about that for a second. I want us to think about our story, not just from uh, the, the cognitive ability that we have, but maybe the story that's been going on ever since you were born that you didn't realize was happening. The story of good versus evil essentially, where the enemy came into the world to wreck it with sin And he did a really good job. 
But then God sends Jesus to, to, to become victorious over all of our sin and all of our mistakes and all of our regret. And then he, he basically says this, that if you will place your trust in Jesus, my grace will be sufficient for you. That if you will move your trust from yourself to Jesus, then you can have a restored relationship with God. That if you would embrace the love of God given to you through Jesus, that all that sin and all that stuff would be washed away. Jesus would take it upon himself. He would defeat the enemy. And so we're gonna sing a song that says some really powerful things. And what I want you to do is I just want you to stay seated because as, as people, we oftentimes move too fast. And we'll talk about this and, and you won't take a second to think about it because we'll be on to the next thing. But for the next couple of minutes while we sing this song, I want you to think about this idea that there is a heavenly father who loves you enough to not just communicate his love to you, but demonstrate his love to you in this way, that while we were sinners, not when we cleaned our life up, right now, some of you, in the middle of your mess, your biggest regrets, your biggest worries, your biggest fears, doubts, failures, in the middle of that, God sent Jesus to demonstrate his love for you, that anybody who would put their trust in him would be saved. And as this song says, uh, there's a part that talks about our heart needing a surgeon and our soul needing a friend. And I think if we can sit here for a few minutes and be honest with ourselves, I think a lot of us, Christians and non-Christians, would say, yeah, that's me. Because we lock our heart up pretty tight with what we believe and what we don't believe. With our insecurities and our fears, we don't let people into certain places of our heart to where we can be vulnerable with one another. And our heart does need a surgeon to come in and cut through all of that stuff and show our soul inside of there that there is a friend in Jesus. And so no matter what you believe tonight, I just want you to take a few minutes and think about the love that was demonstrated for you while we sing this song.